well, I gotta say, I'm not a big soccer guy, and I hated losing the U.S. men's national team stinks me, Porter. What do you feel about this sudden rebirth? I mean, it's definitely sudden. Uh, eight years in the making. I kind of agree with you, though. I mean, there's definitely something to be said for the whole women's soccer in the U.S. blows the men's soccer team out of the water, and let's let's not throw anything too much out there. That's still the case. Oh, absolutely. But it's definitely, it's interesting to see the U.S. back. You know, eight years isn't a ton of time, but it sure feels like a ton of time. It feels like it's been forever since we've seen the U.S. in the World Cup. So, I mean, I'm excited to see it, but I definitely see where you're coming from. Yes, indeed. And today on Folklore Press, we've got somehow a Yankees Saints fan. I'm sure you do have a logical explanation behind that, but Mr. Porter Holt. <laughs> what can I say? What can I say? I'm I'm happy to be here, blessed to be here, you know. I hey, we're how many episodes into the Full Court Press podcast and this is my first time being on, so I'm a little bit upset about I mean, that. In, but in my defense, I've only known you for like a year. That's fair. That's fair. But on on the same side of that, I mean, I do get to come on on Final Four weekend yes, and the day that the World Cup draw was announced. So, yeah, so it, it's not a bad it's not a bad day for exactly. a debut. I'll say it. So the US Miracle somehow qualifies for the World Cup. And then the U.S. draws in its group. England, Iran, and the winner of the Euro playoff between Wales, Scotland, and Ukraine. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yep. And when I look at this, I immediately think the U.S. should beat Iran. I'm not the biggest soccer brainiac, but that's that feels like a matchup the U.S. should take. England, they're going to get destroyed. Yeah, England simple. is the one that you're circling as a, as right, a rough matchup. For... Who we should hope to come out of the Euro playoff? I mean, when you look at these three, the teams, out of those three, my personal choice would be Scotland because Wales feels like it's always been up there and the Ukrainians have to be playing motivated right now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have to agree with you there. One of the big things that's been talked about with the World Cup draw as a whole, though, is that there's really not a death group, so to speak, which is like that's been all over Twitter since the draw at noon. Um, about, you know, none of these groups looks too incredibly difficult to get out of. But on the flip side of that, if you look at the U.S.'s draw, they're getting the winner of that Euro playoff that we just mentioned, and Iran. Obviously, England is is a dominant <laughs> force. But you look at the other two, they got a pretty good draw on yes, the flip side did. of that whole idea of no one really having a death group, which I do think is accurate. I mean, when you look across the board, groups A through H, these are – reasonably even but i think the yeah. u.s has a pretty favorable one I and mean, the only groups looking at this that i see having a little bit tougher roads are group e because you've got spain and germany group c has argentina and mexico group d solely because they have the reigning world cup champs with Kylian mbappe and france but how about no italy that that surprised me well, it's surprising not to see them there, but the way that they got knocked out, too. I mean, who could have predicted North Macedonia would be the team <laughs> that sends Italy home, right? I mean, it's, I predicted that. It's, it's just so surprising to see. But, yeah, you're absolutely right, Liam. Looking at a field that doesn't have Italy in it in the time of soccer that we're in, I, it's strange. No kidding. No kidding at all. But that's our soccer talk. Now we get into a topic that, Porter, I'm sure you have a lot to say about. So, Thursday, Ryan Cashman came out and said the 2017 Astros are to blame for our World Series draft. Now, I have a lot of thoughts about this because I hate both these teams with a burning passion, but 
my first thing is he's right, but to not entirely some degree. I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head. I, I definitely you can't say he's wrong. I don't think, but you can definitely poke holes because, I mean, the way I look at it, it's really hard. Like. This is far from the first instance of a team cheating or being accused of cheating, whatever it might be, in in any sport that then, of course, what it leads to is, what if it didn't happen? This happens all the time, right? We've seen it with the Patriots. We've seen it, obviously, most recently with the Astros. We've seen it time and time again. It happens, and of course, the immediate reaction is, oh, what if? You can't play the what if game is the problem. We don't know. What if the Astros hadn't cheated that whole season? For all we know, maybe they would have been at the seller of the AL West. They probably wouldn't have been. It's a very talented team without that. But my my point being, you can definitely poke holes in what Cashman said. Because you don't know. Like, yeah, if it seems like in that series, if the Astros weren't cheating, the Yankees would have won that series. But we don't know how everything else would have gone. But, I mean, I think what he's saying is they were on the doorstep and the Astros turned them away because they were cheating. Which I don't think that's... I don't think you can say that's wrong because you look back to that series... All seven games were won by the home team. The Astros won every game in Houston and lost every game in the Bronx. And the games in the Bronx, they did not look very good. So with that, that's the only real data you have for the claim that he's making, I think. And based on that data, yeah. I mean, if the Astros couldn't win a single game in the Bronx where they weren't stealing signs, who's to say they could have won all four in Houston if they weren't stealing signs? So I have a lot to unpack about this, but first of all, I will say... If the 2017 Astros weren't cheating, you know what the ALCS would have been that year? I mean... It would have been, Red Sox, goes, it would have been Red Sox-Yankees. This goes back to, you know, the, the what-if game, but <laughs> you're probably right, yeah. All right, so I have a lot of things to unpack about this. The first of which is that I'm sorry, I really am, but the New York Yankees scored three runs in seven games at Minden Maid Park. They scored one run in games one and two, the Astros scored only two runs. Now, and I was having a conversation of this with a friend yesterday, if Correa, he had both RBIs in that game, if the trash can was in use on those two pitches, then yeah, you can have a legitimate conversation. But if your offense isn't going to produce, then there's definitely a hole to be poked. Second, I talked about this a few weeks ago, and it's entirely hypothetical, but we, if, if that letter gets unsealed, it could open up Pandora's box for your organization, but it's just, you can't assume is the point I'm trying to make. So overall, I think his response was kind of babyish. I think that rather than blame another team, you should be fixing the problem yourself, i.e. go sign a Carlos Correa, go sign a Trevor Story, and just don't stick to Joey Gallo and Anthony Rizzo. I definitely, I, I think you make several good points there. I didn't really interpret it and of course, being a Yankees fan, this changes a lot. Um, I didn't really interpret it as him kind of being babyish, like you said. I more the way that he talked about it was more so you guys keep pushing me about this whole World Series drought, and I don't think it's warranted because in 17 we were right on the doorstep and we lost to a team that was cheating. And I think that's a fair statement to make. Um, but you're also right, like that was one year and the Yankees haven't been to the world series in a lot longer than that. So, so no, I definitely, I, I I definitely think you make a few good points. I don't think Cashman's in the wrong. Um, but the fact of the matter is he can't go back and, 
do 2017 over again. So the, the emphasis shouldn't be on that anymore. But I don't think he was just throwing that. Like, it didn't seem to me that he was just like, you know what? I just need to put this out there that, hey, the Astros cheated. So screw them. And we should have won the World <laughs> Series. This was much more the fact that over the last, I mean, it's been happening for a long time now, but especially over the last few months, there's just been so much of that. Like, he, it's time. Why is, don't you have he one? He has taken heat from a lot of Yankee fans, perhaps more heat than any GM in all of baseball. And you have to consider that he's made a lot of really good moves, especially moves that didn't look good at the time. Yeah. So you look at him, like, I think just objectively, like, not even as a Yankees fan, if you just look at the moves that GMs have made, I don't think you can make an argument that he hasn't been a top 10 GM just in terms of the moves that he's made over the last, say, five years. Um, I mean, the Yankees were frankly disappointed. I mean, you look up and down the board, LeMahieu, Torres, both had really bad seasons. And is it safe to assume that they're going to bounce back to 2019 for him when both were hitting 30 home runs? No. But you can expect them to be a lot better than what they were. Yeah, and exactly. That's, That's the point I'm getting at here is, Cashman has reason to be frustrated at people getting on him so much at this point because he's built these teams beautifully and better than people thought he would, better than people thought he did, and they haven't been able to win, but I don't think that's his fault, and I think that's where the frustration is setting in. But I didn't, even so, I didn't see this as that big of a lash out. I I, I thought it was reasonable, what he said. Okay, well, we can go on and on about this for hours, but... There's NFL news to talk about before we get into the women's side of the Final Four. Bruce Arians, no longer the head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, now in a front office role. Todd Bowles steps in as the head man. Porter, and this has been ringing on in the thoughts of a lot of minds. How much did Tom Brady have to do with this? I mean, that's the question, Liam. That's the question on everybody's minds. I... I want to say... With my heart, I want to say he didn't have anything to do with it because it doesn't it, it, it just doesn't line up for me. But in my head, it there was no indication that Arians was gonna step away and then Brady unretired, and just like that, he's gone. So, like logically, it seems like the connection is there, but in my heart, like it just doesn't that doesn't click for me. Like, why would he have an issue with that? You would think, but there were reports that him and Arians began to clash, and no disrespect to any of the other head coaches in the NFL, but unless you're Bill Belichick or maybe Mike Tomlin, Tom Brady's going to get his way with you. Plain and simple, he's the greatest quarterback of all time, seven Super Bowl rings, the list of accomplishments goes on and on. If you're not in agreement with him, who do you think that the front office is going to take precedence over? The GOAT or Bruce Arians, who's a fine coach, but isn't Bill Belichick. Now... I think it's interesting them bringing in Todd Bowles because his stint with the New York Jets was nothing short of a disaster. I wouldn't go that far at all. What? Todd Bowles went seven and nine with the Jets. Okay, that okay. Seven and nine <laughs> for the Jets is a great <laughs> year. A That's a great year. Seven and nine for the Jets is their Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I I like. I'm glad you brought up we, Todd Bowles we, because we can't be too hard on the Jets. They're having a rough day with Degrom going out because most oh, yeah, of them are no, fans. Yeah. Hey, hug hug a Jets fan. Um. <laughs> But, no, I, I I think the bigger takeaway, it's going to be, I don't think we're ever going to know for sure if Bruce Arians retiring for the second time is because of Brady or not. Um, the bigger takeaway I had from this is Todd Bowles. Because ever since he got cut loose by the Jets, I've been waiting for him to get his second chance. He's a good coach. He's a good coach. Like, I re- he's been one of, that 7-9 and Jets season, keep in mind, they were one win away from making the playoffs that year. 
their starting quarterback was Ryan Fitzpatrick. It's magic, baby. So Todd Bowles, I really think, just needs a second chance. I didn't think that the Jets should have fired him at the time. Obviously, just visibility-wise, they needed to because they needed to have a change of the guard, as they do almost every season. <laughs> um, but, no, I, Todd Bowles, I think, absolutely deserves this job. And I, the Bucks' defense was really disappointing last year after being pretty dominant the year before disappointing in terms of how they were the year before i think under bowls they're gonna have some kind of resurgence and i mean i'm glad to see bowls get a second chance i just wish it wasn't with a team in my division yeah no kidding and you know after brady retired the nfc south sort of seemed to open up there were questions about whether or not new orleans or atlanta was going to get to sean watson i don't care who the bucks head coach is the division is tampa's now plain and simple like New Orleans, yeah, you've got pieces, but you're still not in a great space financially. Atlanta's not ready. Carolina's not ready. What more can you say? Yeah, I mean, it's the Bucks' division to lose. Um, I think the Saints are, without question, um, in a position that they could win that division, but it's it's the Bucks' division to lose. Carolina and Atlanta are both going to be a joke next season, barring something incredible. Um so, yeah, it definitely looks like Tampa has that division locked up, at least as long as they have Brady. Indeed. Now, moving into basketball, we start on the women's side. Quickly before we get into the four teams left, shout-out to the Creighton Blue Jays, the 10 seed. Couldn't get it done against South Carolina in the Elite Eight, but they knocked out my champion. I had Iowa and Caitlin Clark going all the way. Yeah, I could not believe they beat Iowa. Caitlin Clark is playing like a woman possessed she did it all season <laughs> and Creighton handled it handled her handled Iowa granted it wasn't easy one by two but the Blue Jays I I was amazed that that this team went as far as it did being Iowa and then Iowa State back to back of course no match for South Carolina but it doesn't really look like anybody is right now so Creighton was in my opinion, the surprise of this year's women's tournament. I mean, certainly a solid team through the regular season, but I don't think many people at all, other than Creighton fans, could have expected them to do anything like Make this. The Elite Eight. Now, and when you look up and down the board, some other shockers, Virginia Tech and Liz Kitley, the ACC Player of the Year, losing to 12-seed Florida Gulf Coast in round one, and then Belmont beating Kelly Graves in Oregon 73-70. to I bet you the Ducks miss Sabrina Ionesky right now. Absolutely. I think this year's tournament on the women's side, I mean, we see year to year, comparing the women's tournament to the men's tournament, there's far less upsets on the women's side. Yeah. There's just, it, it, that's just the way it is. It's not bad, it's not good, it's just the way it is. This year, there were actually some yeah, upsets. We we saw, we saw some double-digit seeds making noise, some lower seeds making noise. I'm all for it. I love the upsets. I don't mind seeing Blue Bloods win either, but the upsets are great. And, and yeah, I mean, Florida Gulf Coast was a massive one, beating Virginia Tech, a team that we know well. Um, that This was definitely a really entertaining tournament. Creighton going to the Elite Eight, obviously, is the biggest shock. But, yeah, Belmont over Oregon, I huh. that is – I was really surprised by that. I was at Tully's for that game. It was yeah. – it was – they obviously, they had a bunch of men's game on, but – I saw a few TVs had that game, and I'm just like, oh, crap. Yeah, this, I, I'd go as far as saying this is one of the best, most entertaining women's tournaments yeah. we've had in some it's, time. But even still, and this is where we segue into the four teams left, you still have four perennial powers in the Final Four, beginning with the UConn Huskies. Ever since Paige Beckers have, has come back, UConn has not lost. It was about a month ago, and 
that NC State double overtime game may have been the best in all of college basketball this year. Oh, yeah, no question about it. There are plenty of arguments to be made. We've had some great contests, but oh my goodness, UConn-NC State, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this, but if that game ended in regulation, it still probably would have been the best college basketball game of the year. So, I mean, what a contest, but you mentioned it, Liam. Paige Beckers, when she's on the court, UConn just looks so unstoppable, and she willed UConn to that win. NC State arguably played the better team game, but at the end of the day, they didn't have Paige Beckers. <laughs> I mean, yeah, NC State had four players, excuse me, five players in double digits. The highest player that scored was Jakia Brown-Turner with 20, but Paige Beckers has 27. UConn had four players in double figures. Beckers had 27. Kristen Williams had 21. Flood had 19. Edwards had 10. So when you look at that, Paige Beckers was just the best player on the court, plain and simple. And people were talking about whether or not Kaelin Clark was the best player in the sport after Beckers went down. Her going out early has eradicated any sort of competition. I mean, yeah, Aaliyah Boston with South Carolina is good. More on her in a bit. But what Paige Beckers does on the basketball court is unbelievable. And UConn, 14 straight Final Fours. That is the single most dominant run in any sport, college or pro, all time. And we're never going to see anything like it again. No, we're not. I mean, UConn women's basketball is the dynasty. There's just, I mean, there are other teams you can talk about. You can look at the Yankees. You can look at the Patriots. You can look at other teams in college basketball. Celtics, Celtics, sure. Lakers, even. (laughs) But nothing is ever, I mean, it's ridiculous. It is absolutely insane what UConn has been able to do. 14 straight Final Fours. Like, if you said that to someone who only vaguely knows college basketball, they would not believe for a second that that's possible. It is absolutely insane. And, I, hey, UConn's got to credit Paige Beckers for stretching it from 13 because it looked like that streak was on the ropes. And Gino Ariema has to be the best college coach of any sport all time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are arguments to be made for others, but it's it's hard to argue with that. Without question. All right. I mentioned Aaliyah Boston in South Carolina. They've lost the SEC final to Kentucky, but ever since then, I mean, 79-21 to in the first round game against Howard, that's unheard of. I mean, it's hard to think of any game in any sport that has been more dominant than that showing. I mean, it's not just the score. South Carolina just bullied Howard the whole way. But let's four not forget half, four points in the first half. Let's not forget the very next game. South Carolina only gave up 33 to a far better Miami team. I mean, that two game stretch, you could argue, is the best two game stretch for any team in all of college basketball this season. 27 points per game over two games. That's ridiculously good defense. Yeah, it's South Carolina just steamrolled its way through those first two games. A little bit of a hiccup against UNC. But this team just looks so good and, and really cemented that against Creighton, winning by 30 last they're round. They're incredibly deep. You know they're deep when Camilla Cardoso, the reigning ACC freshman of the year, is coming off the bench for them. That's how good this Gamecock squad is now. Aaliyah Boston comes in averaging 17 points per game and 12 rebounds per game. She could give a lot of teams problems because UConn and some of the other teams we're going to talk about in a minute have stronger guard play. If you bring in a big like Aaliyah Boston, that the only team in Wobaba that can probably contend with that is Stanford, more on them in a minute, it could give trouble to 
who they're playing, and I'll just say it, the Louisville Cardinals, who are a guard-oriented team. Yeah, very guard-oriented. Now, granted, they've got one of the best in Haley Van Litt. <laughs> they've got, they have a few players that can really put it in the bucket. But, I mean, you said it. Yes, South Carolina, the guard play is not quite as good as probably all three of the other three teams in the Final Four. But you're absolutely right. Down low, what they can get done, it's just, you mentioned it, Stanford is probably the best suited for that. Um, But when when it gets to the tournament, honestly, we see it a lot. It comes down to the play in the paint. Because perimeter shooting gets hot, gets cold. You'll have a team that doesn't really shoot the ball that well, and all of a sudden they get hot. You'll have a team that shoots the lights out, and they can't hit a three to save their lives. That down-low play tends to be a lot more consistent, and I think it's a big part of why South Carolina is such a threat to anybody they And play. here's why Stanford is the best suited for them. They're not playing the Gamecocks in the Final Four. They play UConn tonight. They are the best suited team to defend Aaliyah Boston because of a young lady named Cameron Brink. Yeah. Six-foot-four sophomore. Had a 20-20 game back on Thanksgiving. She wasn't feasting on turkey. She was feasting on the Indiana Hoosiers. But 13 double-doubles on the season, that's not easy to do. Yeah, it's not at all. In college women's basketball, it's almost unheard of. And, yeah, you mentioned it. That's the one one, the one spot that you look at where South Carolina could be hung up. Yeah. Is where you look at a team that really could match Aaliyah Boston We'll see if that actually happens. Of course, they may not even meet, depending on what Louisville and UConn do. But it, it would definitely be a pretty intriguing matchup, you'd have to say, seeing those two go at it. Absolutely. And elsewhere, up and down this Stanford roster, you've got Lacey and Lexi Hull all in the family. How about that? Then Haley Jones, the 6'1 guard, 11 double-doubles of her own. It is very rare to see two double-double threats especially two of whom who are both over six feet on the women's side. And that's part of the reason that why this Cardinals team is so deadly. And 12 of their players from last year's national championship team are back. The experience is there. And that is why this Cardinal team is so lethal. Yeah. The experience is a huge part of it. Obviously the depth is big too. When you get to this point in the tournament, everybody has depth. Not everybody has that experience. The Cardinal is just such a force hasn't looked as dominant as the other teams in this Final Four, I would argue. But you know what's there. You know what's ready to come out when they need it. Um, I I think Stanford is is arguably the team to beat. It definitely has to be between Stanford and South Carolina. Indeed, but the Louisville Cardinals would like a word, though, because their guard play with Haley Van Lith, Emily Engsler, I know I'm missing one, Keanu Smith, that's who I was missing. It is, it's really good. Porter, you saw this team play in person. What were your takeaways from that game? Well, the takeaways were just that this team can score it basically at will. Haley Van Lith in particular, uh, she is an incredible player to watch. Just so gifted with the basketball. Really just knows how to put it down, knows how to give it up, knows when to put it up. And the way that she plays alone makes this offense a force. But then when you supplement that with Kiana Smith and with Emily Angsler, who, man, it hurts to see her not in a Syracuse uniform, <laughs> it, it, it can just be lethal at times. The guard play is great. They have just enough size to make up for what could be a perceived slight outside of that. 
yeah, seeing them play in person, they absolutely dominated the Orange. Granted, SU could not buy a shot for most of that game, but that doesn't change what Louisville does on the offensive end, which was just, I mean, shoot the lights out. Yeah, Emily Engsler has taken huge strides in her game since transferring to Louisville. I mean, it's it's ridiculous just how much of an improvement she's made. Now, up and down the board, Haley Van Lith, 20-plus points in all four tournament games. After that loss to Miami in the ACC tournament, a lot of people left Louisville for dead, but Haley Van Lith was just like, no, proceeded to get buckets on every single team the Cardinals have faced. Albany, Gonzaga, Tennessee, and Michigan. They just haven't stood a chance. Yeah, Haley Van Lith is... I mean, of players that I have seen in person this year, by far the best player I've seen. Now, I haven't watched South Carolina or Stanford or UConn in person, to be fair. But, I mean, Haley Van Lith, just watching her up close, just revealed just how good she is, which I think people already knew. But it's... I talked about the fact that Paige Beckers can basically will UConn to victory. Haley Van Lith is that equivalent for yeah. Louisville. All right, real quick before we get into the men's, who has one shining moment Sunday night? It's really tough to say because these teams are all around so good. But I have South Carolina knocking off Louisville, honestly, pretty handily. And I have UConn just getting by Stanford. But South Carolina is a freight train right now. I, I, I think they win it. I agree with you on both Final Four games. I think South Carolina beats Louisville. I think UConn beats Stanford. But the thought of Paige Beckers not winning a championship is just sickening. I think UConn returns to the top of the NCAA. Gino Ariema gets yet another title. And Paige Beckers, the best player in all of college basketball, men's or women's, takes one home. Yeah, I mean, I can't argue with it. I could definitely see it happening. But... That being said, I could see any of these four teams winning. Yes, absolutely. Oh, it's so it's great because on both the men's and the women's side, at least in my opinion, any of the four could win. Yeah, I, I actually disagree. I think there's one team on the men's side that can't win it, and I will get into that in a little bit. But, but first, we got to talk about what happened in the Elite Eight. We all hated to see St. Peter's lose to North Carolina, but the Dougie Buckets magic is something we will never forget. Absolutely not. I mean, March Madness is so fun. It's just, like, I hope it never changes. Never it is, changes. It is the perfect tournament. It is amazing. It is my favorite sporting event of the year, every year by so far. Even if one of my teams is in a championship in a, in a professional league, March Madness is the best. Um, but that St. Peter's run, I, what? I can't, I can't even believe it. And I would argue, like, Yes, we just saw a 15 seed go to the Sweet 16 last year, too. I would argue that Oral Roberts coming into the tournament was a way better team than St. Peter's oh, this yeah. year. Oh, yeah. Oral Roberts had Max Aismas that can pretty much score at will. They had Kevin O'Banner that was dominant in the tournament, followed up what was a really impressive season. St. Peter's came in looking like a pushover 15, which, to be fair, a lot of them are. Oral Roberts didn't look like that. There was some speculation that they actually had a pretty good shot to beat Ohio State. No one gave St. Peter's any chance to beat Kentucky. And after that win over Kentucky, it, St. Peter's just took off. I, I mean, it hurt to see them go down to UNC, and particularly because it's UNC. But, I mean, what a run. I, it, it's just, it's so fun. I, I love the upsets. We've had so many good ones in the last few years. But this St. Peter's run, I, I mean... There's a good chance it's never matched. Yeah, and it got Shaheen Holloway the Seton Hall job. I mean, 
Good for him. Good for him. A former pirate played point guard back in the day. Seton Hall was the last school from Jersey to make a run this deep. When Shaquille Holloway was the point guard on that team. So, how about that? You really come full circle. But elsewhere, I mean, let's see. I mean, Houston falling to Nova after making me eat tenderitas locus tacos on a date to come later. Arkansas falling to Duke. I mean, but overall, I mean, when you look at all the teams that have gotten bounced, it's just St. Peter's means a lot. And what are your thoughts on Shaheen Holloway headed to Secaucus to coach Seton Hall? Well, I think it's a great move for Seton Hall. Um, it hurts for St. Peter's fans for sure. You look at Oral Roberts, 15 seed last year, didn't make the tournament this year. St. Peter's is more than likely about to go on a very long stretch without getting back to the tournament. Uh, that's mm-hmm. partly because they're probably going to undergo a lot of transfers after this season. Same thing happened to Oral Roberts. Uh, you look at Max Aismith stayed behind, but Kevin O'Banner left, which was huge. St. Peter's roster is going to be decimated next season. And when you lose your coach at the same time, I mean, it's going to be a long time before we see St. Peter's back, unfortunately. But... For Holloway, like I mean, that it's just what what a great spot for him to end up. You figure it has to have been a dream of his ever since he played at Seton Hall, and for Seton Hall, I, yeah, I think it's a great signing. I've always been partial to Seton Hall, even more so since Kadari Richmond went there. So I, I think it's it's a good move for Holloway. It's a good move for Seton Hall. St. Peter's a major loser in this situation. Yeah, and it's sad to see, but. That's March when you have these teams. Loyal Chicago is another good example. Porter Moser is now the head coach at Oregon. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite coaches just for his name alone. But <laughs> but yes, absolutely. That's that's how it goes in March when you're an underdog team, a team from a smaller conference, a team that gets an at-large bid. If you're a team that is not expected to win and you go deep, that coach is all of a sudden a very hot commodity, which of course is great for the coach really bad for the program especially when you're that low a seed absolutely all right we got four teams to get through so let's not waste any time villanova i left them for dead after they got annihilated in back-to-back games by baylor and creighton back in december and things look dire for them because justin moore is gone their second leading scorer but one thing i have fallen into a trap to for a while now is you can't count out jay wright in march you can't count out Jay Wright, and what we're seeing this March is you can't count out Colin Gillespie. Oh, no. Villanova is just looking like such a talented team at the right time. And I was having a conversation with somebody else about this who mentioned the fact that one of their biggest stats that jumps off the paper is their free throw shooting. And he attributed that to being, if that's the stat we're talking about, how good could they be? That is absolutely incorrect in March. In March, you want a team that can hit free throws. Villanova can do it. They do a lot of other things well. I had them going to the Final Four. Here they are. I actually picked Kansas-Villanova in the Final Four. So I think that's the first time I've ever picked a Final Four matchup uh, completely correctly. So that was pretty nice. Did you have Duke or UNC? No, the other side I had wrong. But one side I had right. And I'll I'll take that. But Villanova, I, I think, is a better team than Kansas. Kansas is good enough that even though Nova looks like the better team, Villanova is still going to have to play very well to win. But uh, Jay Wright has turned this program into just a, a really dominant force. Villanova's about an hour, 15 minutes away from me at home, so it's always fun to see them do well. They have a really loyal fan base. The one thing I'm looking at here 
is that their last two national championships have come off of this team making it to the second round. So if they can do that again, hey, here they are. The the, I mean, the, the that, formula that, is right. Incorrect. They did lose in the Sweet 16 last oh, year. Oh, Sweet 16 last year. You're right. Well, then maybe it'll be Kansas. Uh, you're maybe. right. I would. You're, Though, I forgot. Like we say, last year was kind of a Mickey Mouse tournament. Yes, that, that's <laughs> true. Okay, so first of all, the fact that this game is a rematch is really neat. You build over in Kansas played in the Final Four four years ago. More on that in a minute. You mentioned their free throw stat. As a team, if the season were to end today, they would hold the NCAA record for highest free throw percentage in a season. That's ridiculous. And when you look up and down, Gillespie, Samuels, Franco Massachusetts native, Dixon, the list goes on and on. They have guys that can score in a variety of ways. And like we've been saying, you can't count out Jay Wright in March. Third Final Four in six tournaments. The last two times he's gotten there, they've won the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue against those statistics. Jay Wright, I really think, has turned Villanova into a blue blood. You could certainly argue that. But at this point, a run like this, not just the championships, but they've just become a mainstay. This is a team that yeah. you now my expect friend, to be... My friend used the term new blood to describe them. Yeah, I think that's completely fair. I, I think that's that's a pretty good term for it. It's just, this is now a team that you put up there with a Duke, with a Kentucky, with someone along those lines, that every year you pretty much know is going to be a one through four and probably a one or a two. Absolutely. Now, the Kansas Jayhawks, you know, one of the things that has been a little recent to me about the Jayhawks is that they haven't had a super tough road. Texas Southern, Creighton, then their toughest matchup came in the Sweet 16 against the Providence Friars. Shout out my boys. Then they did not look good in the first half against Miami, but the Jayhawks outscored the Hurricanes 47-15 to in the second half of that game. That's about as good as they can be. Yeah, I mean, that second half for Miami, granted, was inexcusable. I mean, I love Jim Laranega, but that is such a ridiculously slanted stat line. Kansas definitely turned it on in the second half. I, I, I think a lot of what happened was due to Miami just totally folding. I think at the half, Jim Laranega's team just smelled it. That the, the Canes thought they were there, reaching their first Final Four ever, and Kansas was not done yet and just turned it on, but... I think if you look at the teams in the Final Four, it's hard to argue Kansas hasn't had the easiest path, and I think that might hurt them because you look at these other teams, every other team has had, I would argue, at least two really tough tests to get here, at least two in the tournament. Kansas, you mentioned it, Providence was the toughest test, and that's not particularly tough. Hey. So, No, Providence is a good team, but you look at... Duke had to get past Arkansas and Texas Tech. I, Nova, I get, I get Nova had to be Houston. Like you look from, at though. you look at these other teams, it was it was a lot tougher. UNC beating Baylor and UCLA. I mean that Providence is not up in those terms. I would argue. I think no. that's I think that's gonna hurt the Jayhawks. But at the same time, Kansas it seems like forever high seed get bumped early. It just yeah. seems like it's it's a team that always struggles to go far. Well, hey, now they're in the Final Four, so maybe it's time to actually start believing in Kansas. And you could argue on the other side, maybe those easy matchups mean that this team is better rested, more prepared to take on a Cats team that had a much tougher road. In particular, having to play against one of the best defenses in the entire country in Houston last game. Yeah, and that Houston team really 
decimated Arizona, and Nova only scored 50 points in that game, but against a team like Houston, and you're holding them to 44, no no shame in that, really. And But about Candace, Oshai Baji, if it weren't for Paulo Bencura, would be the best player remaining in the NCAA tournament, and... You know, Bill Self, this is just the second Final Four Kansas has been to since they won the chip in 08. The last one didn't go so well. You get a shot of revenge here. Against the same opponent, by the way. The final score of that game from 2018, 95-79. Not even close. Yeah, I I saw a tweet today that read something along the lines of the Final Four reads like it's scripted. And it does. <laughs> you look at Duke-UNC on one side in what... A Duke loss, it would be Coach K's final game in Duke-UNC in the Final Four, and on the other, it's a Kansas-Nova rematch in the Final Four? That's ridiculous. It's 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 a storybook tournament. So, absolutely, for Kansas, the chance at revenge is, is going to be a major motivator here. It's really tough to pick this game, but that, that motivation factor that Kansas has to avenge not just a loss, but a blowout loss in a game that a lot of people thought they would win... It, it could play a factor in, in this matchup. I had them winning that game. I had them winning the whole thing that year. So, do you remember when Jim Beheim went on first take and said that Duke's players would struggle under the tournament spotlight? Didn't happen. Well, at least not yet. No, at least not yet. Jim Beheim also said that this would be the best shooting team Syracuse has ever had. Look what happened there. Yeah. All right. But enough about our old grumpy Jim. The Duke Blue Devils are coming into the tournament playing their best basketball of the entire season. They are. I don't think you can make any argument against that, especially because, to be quite honest, the Blue Devils look shaky at points in the they regular didn't look season. Good against Michigan State either. And in and the ACC tournament, and then, like you said, against Michigan State. I honestly had them losing to Michigan State in that game. I expected them to look shaky there, and they did, but came back against Michigan State behind against Texas Tech the very next game, came back again, and we basically saw a repeat again against Arkansas. So this is a team, not only have they beaten good teams, and, and I would argue Duke, out of the four teams in the tournament, Duke has probably had the toughest tournament to get to this point. You could argue UNC, but I think because they got St. Peter's last round, it, it has to be Duke. So this is a team that's had the hardest road to get to the Final Four, and not only has it been tough teams, they have shown an incredible resilience and an ability to just get back in games. It looked like they were left for, getting against, left for dead against Michigan State, end up winning by nine. Looked like Texas Tech had a really good grasp on that game. Duke ends up winning by five. Arkansas win by nine over a really, really well-coached Arkansas team that also, at points in that game, looked like it was in control. So Duke... Really good opponents and really good games. I, this team is hard to pick against after what we've seen in those first four games of the tournament. Yes, up and down this Duke team, you've got first-round talent. Paul Bancaro is going to be a top three pick. A.J. Griffin can shoot the lights out. Mark Williams is dominant inside. Wendell Moore is fairly well-rounded, as is Trevor Keels, even though he's kind of short. The fact that Trevor Keels is coming off the bench for this Duke team tells you just how good it is. And, you know, I'm not going to lie, every time they flip it to Coach K and his wife walking into a game, it's it's kind of cringe, especially when there is another game going on and it's coming down to the wire. I mean, there's not really a lot of need for that. But as much as I hate Duke, Coach K going out on top would be a nice storybook ending to a historic career. 
See, I'm glad you agree with that because I didn't think you would, but that's exactly how I feel. I can't stand Duke, but there's just something right about Coach K going out. It's so strange because I think most dynasties cause you as a fan, as long as you're not a fan of that dynasty, to hate the coach. Yeah. I can't hate Coach K. You can I, hate Bill I just, oh, I can. That's what I'm saying. I can hate Bill <laughs> Belichick. I can hate other coaches of that same ilk. But for Duke, I just can't hate Coach K. I wouldn't mind seeing him win at all. Now, I'm not going to be upset if he doesn't. Don't get me <laughs> wrong. But it is definitely a great storyline, and it's hard to do. It's really rare to see a player or a coach actually get that championship in that that last run. Absolutely, and you know it's. Coming out on top. People were talking about Brady going out on top after he beat the Falcons. He has two since then. So Ray Lewis did it as well. It's nice to see these legends, whether you love them or hate them, like I despise Ray Lewis. It's nice to see them come out on top, though. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And it's strange, like building off of that point, I think college basketball just creates an environment that promotes that idea of being okay with blue bloods being okay with dynasties and i think it's because on the professional level a dynasty is the same players winning every year in college that's not the case so you can fall in love with a team all over again basically so in most sports i can't stand dynasties i hate seeing the same teams win over even if it's my team obviously the yankees made the playoffs for a lot of years in a row when i was a kid and it got to the point where it's like, I'd rather see a different team, honestly. And I'm not joking about that. And I love seeing different teams in the playoffs every year. College basketball, though, because it's new players every year, it just promotes that idea of, like I said, falling in love with the team all over again. And I think that's why it's so easy to still like Duke. Not like Duke, but be okay with them winning here because of the storyline. Absolutely. All right, last team to get to, the North Carolina Tar Heels. What a run they've had. They... Blow out Marquette, then win a crazy overtime game against Baylor that, frankly, should not have gone to overtime, but the refs tossing Brady Manning prematurely had something else to say about that. Then they grind out a win against a good UCLA team. Then they smash up the Cinderella brackets, taking out St. Peter's. And now we have a Final Four matchup for the ages. And somehow the first ever madness yeah, matchup. I don't between, know how that's possible. It seems impossible that this is the first time that Duke and UNC have ever met. Like It just doesn't make any sense. UNC, I, I mean, I, I actually did have this team beating Baylor, so but then, I. but then losing to UCLA, so did I, I didn't think. I didn't think the Tar Heels had enough to knock off UCLA. I, I, the Bruins have just looked so good. They're so deep, so fun to watch. I mean, I, it's hard not to root for UCLA. That that loss really hurt. UNC is a frustrating team for me because they just feel so hard to predict. On one hand, I I think this team could beat Duke. On the other, they could lose by 30. It's just the Tar Heels are so iffy, and so much depends on the play of Brady Manick. And I'm just going to put it out there, Liam. He's due for a bad game. Brady Manick has been playing out of his mind recently. Brady Manick is not as good as the Brady Manick we've seen so far in this tournament. I, I will stand by that. I will die on that hill. Brady Manick is not this good. Man of little faith. And, and, and I, if, if he doesn't play to the level he's been playing, I think Duke is not going to have a lot of trouble beating UNC. I agree. And another guy that's been red hot for the heels, Caleb Love. Yeah, he's absolutely. Been, but this heels team runs through Armando Baycott. Always a double-double threat. He could give Mark Williams trouble. In fact, he did give Mark Williams trouble. In that game at Cameron Indoor, UNC had 
count them up. One, two, three, four 20-point scores. That's unheard of, especially on the college level. Now, is that a realistic expectation this time around? Absolutely not. But when you have gritty defenders like Leaky Black and RJ Davis, guys who can shoot in Caleb Love, Brady Manning can go off at any moment, and then you've got your best player in Armando Baycott, the Tar Heels have a chance to make some serious noise. And no one expected them to, too, which is the fascinating thing. Well, I I would argue that some people did. I think there was a decent amount of faith that the Heels could get by Baylor and potentially get by whoever would be next, which I think most people probably had UCLA. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the Final Four is a little bit more of a stretch. I, I don't think... Out of all the eight seeds, I think this team is by far the least surprising to go this far. It's yeah, basically what, like, like by far. You're talking about if it was a different eight seed, it would be San Diego State, Seton Hall, or Boise State. Those would be like legend. That would be like a Loyola Chicago type the, of run. The only eight, nine that I could have seen going this far other than UNC is TCU. Yeah, I agree. So I, I do think it's not all that crazy of a run. It's still, incre- I mean, anytime an eight seed goes this far, obviously it's really impressive. But UNC, I mean, you mentioned it. it. It's a team that the starting five is just, it's hard to poke holes. It's Absolutely. very hard to poke holes. It's a team that probably should have been higher than an eight seed, to be quite honest. This probably should have been a six. But the Tar Heels, the fact that the Tar Heels beat the Blue Devils in Cameron Indoor in the game that was supposed to be Dukes going out on top in Coach K's last season in terms of the ACC I think hurts UNC's chances here because how how in the world is Coach K gonna lose his last ACC tournament championship and his last March Madness game to the same team and that team be UNC? There's no way. No way. So let's get into that now. Who do you have winning this weekend? So I like Duke over UNC again. I I think it could be close, but if Brady Manick doesn't play up to how he's been playing, or Caleb Love for that matter. It's probably not going to be very close, but I have Duke winning regardless. On the other side, it's such a hard game for me to pick. I think Kansas takes it, though. I think Kansas gets its revenge over Nova. It's going to be a great game. Don't be surprised if it goes to OT, but I do like Kansas there. Kansas-Duke in the final. I have Kansas ending Duke's run. I I have Kansas leaving Coach K one game short. Disagree somewhat. I think Villanova beats Kansas. I think that despite not having Justin Moore, the Wildcats are playing better basketball right now. I mean, yeah, Candace looked good in the second half against Miami, but that is a 10 seed. I know they made it to the Elite Eight, but that's still a 10 seed. Duke UNC, I've got the Blue Devils. I have a hard time thinking Coach K is going to let UNC spoil another big moment for him, and then I think the Blue Devils take the cake and win the whole thing. Yeah, I, there's definitely an argument to be made. I, I, I would go, honestly... I, any of these four teams any, could win. And that's uh, the great thing about... UNC, both. I don't know if UNC, I can... Maybe. It all depends. Like I said, it all depends. If- that, that's the best. That's the great thing about both the men's and women's Final Four. We're sitting here talking like any of these teams can make noise. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's rare to be in a year where we can both give different Final Fours for the men's and the women's side and then proceed to say, yeah, I mean, that's pretty reasonable because <laughs> it's just so wide open. It's so hard to predict. I think out of both Final Fours, any of the teams could win, but the one big shocker would be UNC. Yeah, I, I, I would, I would say I to to win it all. That is, um, but yeah, I think I would argue that Duke is playing like the best team right now. But I just I, I 
don't think they're going to get that. I, I don't think the storybook ending is going to happen. And on the other side, like I said, I don't think Villanova is going to beat Kansas again in the Final Four. I don't think Bill Self is going to let that happen. And because I don't think Deuce getting the ending, that that makes it Kansas for me. But I, it it could so go anyway. I'm just I'm excited to watch. They're going to be great yeah, it's games. It's going to be awesome. And with that, Porter, it's been awesome having you on, buddy. Thanks so much for doing it. Hey, don't it's hesitate, been great to be here. To do it again. I'd I'd love to be back. Well, well, if the Patriots ever play the Saints, we may have to make that happen. Well, hey, I mean they played what last year, so it's going to be another three before they do again. So well, unless they finish in the same place in the division, that's true. Which is probably going to happen. There's a good chance. All right. Well, for Porter Holt, I'm Liam Griffin. Give us a follow on Instagram at Full Court Pest Podcast and on Twitter at Full CP Podcast. That's F U L L C P Podcast. And if you're interested in being in Porter's chair, you can get in contact with me. We'll probably make it happen if I like you. And then we'll be back next week to recap what happened this weekend. It's going to be awesome. We'll see you then.